Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've just spent the last 10 minutes chatting uh, and chewing the fat because we love today's guest, don't we, Alex? We do absolutely love today's guest. We were to, he's like the, the most low maintenance guest we have because he does all the work himself and you just wind him up and let him go. It's brilliant. Uh, we are joined once again by Jonathan Clements, who's basically... Um, our China correspondent and Far East correspondent. Uh, he has appeared on History Hack in the past to talk about Chinese food, Empress Wu, Kublai Khan, Christ Samurai. That one was brilliant. But he's here this time uh, to discuss weaponized music in Japan, which is to say music's role in propaganda and conflict in the rise and fall of the Japanese empire. This is brilliant. Uh, it's the subject of his new book, Japan at War in the Pacific, published this May by Tuttle. Emperor's Feast might have been a book about how history tasted, but this is a book about history, how history sounded. So, hello, first of all. Uh, hello, I thought you might, you might have been talking to Zach for all I knew just no. then, yes, hello. Yeah. <laughs> no, you are the centre of attention. <laughs> for a change. Do I get to throw a strop at the fact that I'm not centre of attention right now? I yeah, mean, go ahead. We might as well start as we mean to go on. There's going to be yeah. loads of strops today. <laughs> right. So, uh, this is brilliant. You basically give us a list at the end of every podcast of the next podcast you want to do, and we jumped all over this one. Um, let's start with a nationwide revolutionary singing event in 1868. What the hell? Well, um, the broad strokes of history are that in 1868, uh, there is uh, uh, the Meiji Restoration in Japan, the so-called Restoration of the Meiji Emperor. Um, uh, and the idea is, is that the Shogun is supposed to be the barbarian suppressing uh, Generalissimo. It's his job to keep out all the foreigners, and he's failing at his job because the Americans and the British and the French keep shamming up and, and telling the Japanese what to do. So, so the shogun is failing in his responsibility. And there's this huge debate which turns into an argument in Japan about how uh, this is best dealt with. Um, maybe we should replace the shogun with a better shogun. Maybe we should dismantle the shogun system completely and do something else. Maybe we should just let these foreigners in and do what they tell us, because uh, that always works well um, uh, in the 19th century. Um, and what you get in uh, in, in the, the the civil war basically that breaks out in Japan about this is eight different sides all saying they're loyalists because everybody thinks they've got a handle on what the emperor would want if the emperor was allowed to tell them what he wanted which the emperor can't because that would be a bit gauche 
So there's this huge fight over it. And the emperor is, is Mutsuhito, uh, known to posterity as the Meiji emperor. So he's, uh, he's 16, you know, he's a teenage boy. He doesn't know what's going on. And he kind of falls into the hands of this faction of disaffected southern samurai from Satsuma and Choshu. And they proclaim they are restoring the emperor's authority, that the shogun has usurped the emperor's authority, and that they are going to put the emperor back in charge where he belongs, which incidentally is where the emperor has never been. The Japanese emperor has never actually been in charge for like 1,300 years. But that doesn't matter. They are putting him back in charge. And so they start marching up the country because they're all down in the south. They start marching, marching up the country, uh, gathering followers to their cause as they go, proclaiming that they are the imperial loyalists. And the further north they go, the closer they get to the shogun's heartland the city that we now call Tokyo is the shogun's base and so the territory they're marching through is getting progressively more hostile and whereas down in the south they kind of roll into a new town and everyone goes oh you're restoring the emperor cool let's come along and it's all like the wizard of oz and they're all marching up the road not quite the same the closer they get to Edo people are fighting back people are shooting at them um, but they supposedly have the moral high ground because they are supposedly restoring imperial authority so one of them hits up on this idea that everyone should sing a song that there should be a song that declares their position, that tells you all the people they've already roughed up and lets you know they're on their way. Um, and so scouts start riding ahead of the army, distributing copies of this song for everyone to get together and sing along the route as they go. And this becomes a national singing event. And it's, it's well known that this song existed for reasons that will become apparent uh, uh, soon enough. Um, but the, the, the fact that everyone was kind of being drawn up in it, was kind of dragged along and made to sing at the roadside as everybody went along to prove that they were part of the scheme uh, is something that's not really discussed a whole lot. And the song, well, the, well firstly, the, the, the opening lyrics are, Prince, oh, Prince, what is it that flutters in front of your noble horse? Going to get it done, going to get it done to the end which is a very brexity trumpy so we, we haven't specified what it is but we're going to get it done uh and in japanese that is miya-san miya-san ono mano mai ni hira hira suru no ananjanai toko tonyare tonyare na and so on and the idea is that they're being led by a prince um and so already the authorities are involved at a very high level and that he is carrying the imperial banner because uh, the, 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 the verse goes on no you not this is the imperial brocade signifying punishment for rebels the idea is is that no one in their right mind is going to charge against the emperor's own banner and there are many places where people saw the banner coming and and, and surrendered immediately went over to the uh, the revolutionary side um and so the idea of this song is it's supposed to promote, you know, remind people when the banner shows up, this is what's going to happen. And you're going to be disloyal if you charge against it. Um, and, and the song kind of goes on. Uh, and many people don't really, even Japanese historians don't really follow what happens with the rest of the song. But it basically turns into a Jay-Z lyric at that point. And it's like, these are all the people we fucked up. They fled to the east. They left their castle behind. Don't, if you, the people at Fushigi, they got into trouble. The men of Satsuma and Choshu, in the midst of bullets raining down, they charged, devoting their lives for your sake. Going to get it done. Haven't said what it is, but we're going to get it done. And that's how the song proceeds. And that was the national singing event that presaged the Meiji Restoration. This is just mad already. I love it. Um, <laughs> you know, I just love how he breaks out into Japanese singing. <laughs> just like it's nothing. <laughs> it's mental. I love it. I absolutely love it. So we've sort of covered why Mia-san would have sounded familiar to these folks, right? Is, is that fair to say? It sounds familiar to them. Well, I, I mean, well, for the two things here. Firstly, Mia-san... You know, San is what you say to the a guy opposite you on the business room table. You know, it's Mister. Calling a prince Mia San is taking the piss. It's very sassy, and it kind of goes to the heart, I think, of the of the fact that these revolutionaries were using the imperial family as puppets, uh, that they were really in control of them in a, in a way, uh, in an uneasy alliance, really. Um, but you know, Alex is impressed. I remember a Japanese song. A lot of British people know that Japanese song because it shows up in the Mikado. 
because uh, in the 1880s, Gilbert and Sullivan are writing this uh, musical, which is a satire of Britain, but it's set in Japan. And they go down to Kensington, where there's like this Japanese show village that sells like, you know, lucky gonks and whatnot. And they say, can you sing us some songs? We want to stick some Japanesey stuff in our awful musical. And, and the Japanese sing them one of the only songs that they know, which, which, uh, which is Mia-san. Except that in the, in the 15 years that have elapsed since the song was originally created, it's drifted semantically. So the version you hear in, uh, in, in the Mikado is, is Mia-sama, Mia-sama. Uh, because uh, euphonically, that, that final N is better off as a ma anyway. And sama is a, is, a, is a higher level of elevation in terms of Japanese honorifics. It's much more the kind of thing you would use to address a prince than Sam. So there's been a kind of semantic drift in that song. So if you go and see the Mikado now, if you go and see the Mikado tomorrow at some awful church hall, <laughs> um, when, you know, uh, when, when he comes in and they all start singing, that snatch that I've just sung, recognizable it's been garbled a little bit over the years but it's still recognizable um from the battle hymn of the meiji restoration um which is uh quite fascinating uh because um you don't expect to find you know jay-z lyrics popping up in an opera but that's essentially what you've got um with, with this song because it really gets quite rough and declaratory and it basically lists all the people that they've killed and that, you know, you'll be next unless you remember there's a banner and there's a prince holding it this is brilliant you've used the phrase shattered jewel for the title of this podcast what mm -hmm. does that mean well um after the revolution the people of satsuma and choshu uh, tulsa and hisen these these very southern um um domains took over so they basically wiped out the shogun's people. The shogun's people were scattered everywhere. Huge, huge numbers of people lost their livelihoods. The Meiji Restoration is described as a bloodless coup, but thousands of people died. So it was hardly very bloodless. Japanese terms, maybe a bit bloodless, but in, you know, in terms of um, uh, it, it wasn't a tea party. Um, and so the Satsuma and Choshu in particular, they became the dominant members of this new order. They, they took over all the businesses. They took all, all the decision making. They dominated politics completely. Um, and uh, it became clear as time went by that many of the participants in this revolution hadn't really thought through the implications of what they were doing or had been misled, as so many participants in revolution are. You know, you, you get on with the job. We haven't said what the job is, but you've got on with the job. And now we're here and it lies on the side of a bus because it turns out that um, many of the samurai were fighting for the exact opposite of what they thought. And one of them in particular, uh, a man who's famously called the last samurai, uh, Saigo Takamori, um, was this real bruiser, a very uh, uh, a, a violent man, which if you're a samurai is a good thing, um, uh, a, a, a hero in, in the various battles of the, of the war. He was a hero at the Battle of Ueno, for example, where the, the, blood, the water turned red at Shinobazu Pond in what is now Ueno Park in Japan. Um, so he's a hero of the revolution. And then suddenly he's kind of stuck in this modernizing world and the samurai are losing their hairstyles and they're being told you have to take the swords away. And they're bringing conscripts into the Japanese army and japan now has a standing army and he's like this is not what samurai are about we are the warrior class and we do all the warrior things and the people do what they're told and so he's increasingly outmoded uh in in this um modern in this modernizing japan and he's getting increasingly punchy about it um he starts slagging off the iwakura mission which is this uh, fact-finding team that goes abroad to learn about western powers and how their economies work and how their education system works and so on and he said at their farewell party i hope you sink on the way to america you bastards not a good farewell address really um and he quoted a chinese uh, a chinese saying because something that's often overlooked by japanese historians is the degree to which so much japanese culture in the 19th century and before was rooted in Chinese illusions. You know, they didn't have Latin. They were quoting from Chinese all the time. And so he quoted uh, something from 550 AD um, from a, a, a forgotten squib dynasty in, uh, in uh, Dark Age China. He said, uh, it's better to be a shattered jewel than an intact roof tile. 
Um, and this is kind of better to live on your feet than die on your knees. It has exactly the same illusion. Um, in fact, the original Chinese is not even shattered jewel, it's shattered jade. But because it's a 1300 year old quote, the language itself has kind of twisted and, and uh, mutated over the years. And so shattered jewel, gyokusai in Japanese, becomes this term for the people who've given their all and stuck true to their traditions and stuck true to the samurai spirit and still been just kind of steamrolled by progress, as indeed Saigo Takamori was. He, he tried to orchestrate a war with Korea. He said, why don't you send me as your diplomatic envoy? I'll start a fight. They'll murder me. And then you'll have to invade Korea. And everyone's kind of staring at each other going, that's not how we do things, Saigo. Uh, it, it, it's kind of, we're trying to be a bit more diplomatic and kind of civilized now. We kill each other like civilized people. Um, eventually, he stomps off back to the south in a huff. He starts up a bunch of suspicious martial arts schools and eventually stages his own revolt, uh, the 1877 Satsuma Rebellion. And he tries to imitate uh, the Meiji Restoration. He starts off on this march to the north to have a word with those with those suits in Tokyo and tell them what's what and get stuff done, whatever that is. Um, but he doesn't make it more than four stops on the modern train line outside of uh, uh, Kumamoto uh, before everyone is wiped out by a conscript army. Imagine, imagine the shame. Samurai wiped out by a conscript, a conscript army. So, the, uh, and this essentially is, is what the film The Last Samurai is inspired by. Uh, the titular Last Samurai is not little Tom Cruise, it's Ken Watanabe, who's the guy he supports. And, and Ken Watanabe is a kind of allegorical uh, evocation of, of what Saigo Takamori was. Um, and so he is completely slapped down. He's completely slapped down by, uh, by this. Um, but the term Shattered Jewel is taken up by the modern military. Um, and so uh, there's a song um, by the 18, so by the 1890s, Saigo is kind of um, rehabilitated. He might have died as a revolutionary, as a rebel, but his relatives were still in government. So they built a statue to him in Ueno Park, which is still there today. Um, and uh, it's, it's a really odd statue because he's quite a big, bulky man with a really thick neck, like a bullet head. Um, and uh, they couldn't put him in his armor because he died fighting the state. Uh, in fact, they wouldn't even bury him in the Asakuni Shrine, which is where they enshrine their, their war heroes, because he wasn't a hero of a war. Um, so they, they put him in hunting gear, which looks like he's wearing a dressing gown. So he looks like a tramp in a dressing gown, leading a little dog on a, on a string. Um, but this is the image of Saigo Takamori that is remembered by the people of Tokyo. And, and his statue is a very important meeting place in Tokyo. It's kind of Eros in Piccadilly. Uh, for the people of, of, of modern Japan. So it's kind of humanized him and made him quite uh, an acceptable figure for the modern Japanese. Uh, and there were people who complained at the time, we shouldn't be memorializing a man who stood against us, but they did it anyway. Um, and then the Japanese Navy incorporates the term shattered jewel into its anthem. Uh, they, have, they have an anthem called Tekiwa Ikuman, or Myriad Enemies. Tens of thousands of enemies may come, but they are merely a rabble like so many crows. Um, dying in the advance is the honorable thing to do rather than endure as a roof tile, be shattered like a jewel. That's in the Navy's anthem. They sing in that every day at all the military academies, at every Navy function, at every passing out event. They're repeating this term, shattered jewel, shattered jewel, shattered jewel, and, and telling the Japanese that the way to serve militarily, the way to honor your country as a military man, is to die in the service of the country. And I think you can see where that is leading in the 20th century. And what interests me about this um, is, uh, like you said, the, the, the sound of history we can talk in broad strokes about this event happened and then this event happened. But what you get when you concentrate on the songs is, is what people are singing in school assembly, what people are, are singing at, at various military events. And so these terms, these, these, these 
this 1,300-year-old term from a forgotten Chinese dynasty is being rammed repeatedly down the throats of the Japanese uh, at public events over and over again. And so, and so what I do in my book is I kind of chart the progress of the shattered jewel meme all the way through the 20th century to its ultimate end in 1945. Something else that's going to come up again is the Miyasan Miyasan thing, right? Because that reappears in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. Yes, because um, the other thing, you know, Miyasan is also being sung over and over again. Um, uh, it's one of the earliest modern songs in Japan because it's inspired by the songs they heard the Americans playing uh, when they showed up in the 1850s. So it, it's got a bit of the Star Spangled Banner in it, and it's got a lot of Yankee Doodle dandy in it. The use of drums and the use of pipes is very, uh, it, it's something the Japanese weren't really doing in that way before Miyasan. So every song that I mention doesn't come and go in the year it happens. It stays with us. And this is something, it's, it's a big issue for me in, in media history, that, you know, a TV program doesn't just happen in 1971. It happens every time it's rerun as well. So you see it happen and you think, okay, well, that's the year it happened. But then it's sort of, there's this kind of background noise. It becomes part of the background noise. Same thing goes with Miyasan. Um, in the time of the Russo-Japanese War, uh, Miyasan was an old song that everybody knew. Um, and so somebody wrote a parody version of it, taking the piss out of the Russians. Uh, called Minasan, which means everybody. Minasan, Minasan. So it's like everyone, everyone. What is that flurry behind the battleship? Don't you know? It's the Russian soldiers surrendering. Everyone, everyone. What's that lurking in the Tsugaru Strait? Don't you know? That's the Russian warships on the prowl. Everyone, uh, uh, and 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 you know, and so on. Uh, but then somebody did a parody of the parody, which is very rare in Japanese to get something that that's this anti-establishment being being remembered uh, being memorialized everyone everyone what is it that we contribute to this war don't you know that it is the reward money for expedition soldiers uh, and so this is a very rare moment of dissent uh, in in and um, the history of, uh, of japanese propaganda that you've actually got people singing about what a stupid idea the war is um because the Russo-Japanese War was, you know, it's, it's a huge high point for the Japanese military. Japan, uh, this, this elite that's taken over Japan is expanding. They, they, they won in the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, they, they, uh, they're just about to wrest Korea from the Koreans. Um, and, uh, and the Russo-Japanese War is this huge turning point in Japanese history because, you know, it's a time when the Japanese defeat a Western power. It's not actually the first time uh, an, an Asian country uh, did that. Of course, Coxinger, the Pirate King, managed to defeat the Dutch uh, several hundred years earlier. But this is a huge shock. It, you know, the Russian, uh, the, the Tsar, doesn't never recovers from the lo from his losses in the Russo-Japanese War, um, and it suddenly puts the Japanese on everybody's radar. They're the British of Asia. They're this plucky island nation who, you know, has this powerful navy and are getting stuff done. Um, so. Uh, once we have the Russo-Japanese War, suddenly Japan is on this very, very fast track to trying to become a, a great power uh, like the Western nations and expecting to be let in to that, um, to that fold as well. Um, and this, this is a, uh, something that goes on until the, the, um, the Paris Peace Conference, when the Japanese show up and say, so we've done everything that you told us we had to do to be civilized. We're one of you now. And everyone goes, nope, sorry, you're Asian. Uh, which is, you know, a huge, uh, not, not necessarily a huge shock to the Japanese, because some of them were expecting it, but the idea that they were invited to play uh, what one historian calls an alien game, to take part in this, this uh, in, in colonialism uh, and imperialism. And then they're told, you can never really play. Did we not mention that? We were just, you know, having a laugh. I love this. Um, you get to the point after that war though don't you um where they're celebrating individual people in song yes yes absolutely in fact uh the the real the, the crucial point i think is um around 1912 so japan fights the russo-japanese war in 1905 um and it gets involved in the great war in, in world war one uh um to a, to a surprising to, to a degree that's often underplayed today um but what happens uh, in 1912 is they introduce uh, 
military ideas into the school curriculum. Uh, they, in, in, 18, in 1913, Japanese boys' schools adopt the exercise manual of the Japanese military on the understanding they are training the next generation of soldiers. And from 1912 onwards, there is a mandatory school assembly hymn book, which includes a huge number of military songs. And they start to celebrate what they call the Gunshin, the war gods. And these are particular Japanese war heroes who they want children to learn from and emulate. Um, and so this begins an increasingly militarizing process of the Japanese school system. And the kind of people that they're celebrating are often really weird. Um, so there was one guy, uh, Lieutenant uh, uh, Hirose, Hirose uh, who was a man in the Russo-Japanese War, whose job was to sink a block ship at the entrance to Port Arthur. Um, and his ship got hit and it started to sink and he couldn't find his, his underlings. And he was last seen kind of waving a torch, trying to find them on the ship and the ship went down. I mean, the ship was hit by a, a shell and he died. He gets a song. Well done for stopping that missile with, with your bare hands, uh, Hirose. There's a man called uh, Captain Sakuma, who's the captain of a submarine. He sunk his own ship. He... Uh, pressed the wrong button uh, when, when they were field testing uh, um, uh, what's known as, as a Holland number no. six uh, submarine uh, and um, the water came in through the top and he, he and his men all suffocated um, um, under about 30 feet of water um, but he kept a very dispassionate journal of the effects of the suffocation and the petroleum fumes as they kind of overwhelmed him uh, and when they when they brought him up the next day, uh, this was a big international incident as well, because something very similar had happened with the Italian Navy and they'd all turned on each other in the submarine. But the Japanese Navy just sat there waiting to die. And this is apparently something worth celebrating. That's and a so, very un-Italian concept, though, isn't it? What, You're asking going... Italians not to create drama. <laughs> I love Italy and I love Italians, but quiet, humble sort of Japanese thinking, I shall await my death stoically people, they ain't. But Sakuma became very popular in Britain for the same reason. The British Navy yeah. were very impressed by this kind of stiff upper lip attitude. And it is really quite moving when you, you kind of, you, you can see he's writing with a pencil, it's in the dark, and he's saying, I think my eardrums have gone now, I'm having trouble concentrating on the thing. Please remember that this was human error that caused this submarine to fail. It was me, I pressed the wrong button. You know, don't blame the mechanics, but maybe work out how to make the button less pressable. You know, that kind of thing. It's a very sad thing to see. But so, so these are the people who are being celebrated. There's this kind of um, the Japanese often talk about the, the nobility of failure, hōgan uh, biiki uh, as they call it. Um, but uh, and so it's not unlike the charge of the light brigade. The idea that the military failure is the thing that we're celebrating. The biggest incident of, inter, of Japan, of Japanese military between the Russo-Japanese War and the outbreak of World War I was actually um, the death march on Mount Hakoda when a, a military um, winter uh, exercise went horribly wrong and, and most people died uh, on a mountainside in the cold. They get a statue for that in Japan, uh, because what you've also got in this period is the Japanese Imperial Army and the Japanese Imperial Navy are not working together on this. They are two oppositional factions. They're fighting for the same resources. Both of them have very different attitudes about what the next combat will be. The Navy is concentrating on the Pacific theater, on the possibility that America is going to be the next big enemy, that we should look at island hopping, that we should look at securing bases further away from Japan. We should secure our fuel resources. The Army is looking at Asia, is looking at Manchuria and Russia and saying we should strike north. We should take part of this you know, area on land. Um, and so the Army and the Navy are picking different people to celebrate. The Army at this point is still absolutely obsessed with aristocratic heroes, with princes who lead armies, and with generals who are posh. And the Navy is on this recruitment drive for the common man. So the Navy is celebrating common men, common men who, who give themselves over to the Navy and save their fellow men. They're putting statues of sailors outside train stations where everyone can see them, because that's part of their recruitment drive. So you get this huge uh, 
tension between the Japanese army and the Japanese navy, which goes right the way up to 1945. They're fighting over the same resources, sometimes to an absolutely ludicrous degree. Um, I mean, uh, in World War II, uh, they both took deliveries of the same aircraft plans, but they deliberately used different screws on, on them so that they, could, they weren't compatible. Um, uh, so uh, the, the competition between the army and the navy also kind of fed into these songs, right? And so, the, and so the school hymn book gets bigger and bigger because the army are going, well, they've only got they, they've got four songs. We've only got three. We want four songs like them. Actually, we want five songs like them. And so you get this kind of one-upmanship going on. And, and the school curriculum hymns, uh, I, I say hymns, you know, they're, they're not religious, but the, the, the songs that Japanese children are singing every day are becoming increasingly more militaristic too. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. But it's not all about sort of pro-state stuff, is it? There are anti-state songs going on as well. So who's writing them and what are they saying? There, there are. There are. Um, and uh, I think it's important to remember that there, there, there's still internal conflict within Japan. Everyone has to pretend that they're all swinging from the same hymn sheet. But actually, there are various dissenting voices going on. The left wing is is destroyed, basically. Um, communism and socialism uh, by the 1920s are both regarded as anti-monarchist and therefore treason. So the entire Japanese left wing is just swept away. And so we've got people basically on the center and the right arguing with each other and things are drifting increasingly more right wing um, as time goes on. Um, so there was in World War One there was a song about Qingdao, which is the uh, the biggest action the Japanese fought in Asia when they they helped the um, the uh, the British take um, Qingdao uh, from the Germans. And uh, there's a song about Qingdao called Naturan, uh, which is basically about a soldier's disappointment. He comes home from the war and the roof is leaking, and the roof is leaking, and he's like, "Why the hell did I bother?" And it's incredibly kind of deflated and defeatist and not the kind of thing the Japanese wanted at all. Um, the big one, the big one was a song called Arirang, uh, which is a Korean song um, about uh, going over the hill to Arirang, which is where they execute uh, criminals um, uh, in Seoul. Um, because Korea from 1910 onwards is a Japanese protectorate, it's a Japanese colony, and the Koreans hate this. Uh, and they're desperately uh, trying to find ways of protesting. Uh, they come up with their own national anthem, the Aigukka, uh, which at the time was sung to the tune of Old Lang Syne. Um, and then so, so the Japanese banned the singing of Aigukka. But Arirang doesn't specifically mention the Japanese. So they kind of get away with singing it. And so Arirang becomes this coded message for, um, uh, for Korean resistance. Uh, particularly after I think about 26, um, bec uh, 1926, because um, there's a film um, called called Arirang, uh, which is released in Korea and Japan, and it's a silent film, as as they were in those days. Um, and so, as a silent film, it requires a benshi, it requires an, a live interpreter. So there's an orchestra playing, and they're playing, and, and then there's this live interpreter doing all the voices and doing all the actions and talking about stuff. And the benshi could be notoriously subversive because silent film is a, is a vulnerable text. Um, the guy who tells you what's happening controls what's happening. And so uh, we have this uh, uh, film about a, you know, a guy on a revenge mission. But whenever the Japanese aren't looking, the benshi turns into it, a film about a guy on a revenge mission against the horrible Japanese. And then the you know, Japanese police officers walk into the cinema and he's like, anyway, as I was saying about the revenge mission against the criminals. Um, and, and so, so Arirang becomes a very subversive film. And we don't have the film anymore. So we can't tell the degree to which the experience of the viewers in the cinema uh, was... Um, uh, was subverted. Um, my favorite Benchy story, by the way, um, uh, which is the one that really got Benchy into trouble, uh, was there was a film about the storming of the Bastille. There was this kind of French revolutionary thing. 
And so the Japanese censors said, well, that's banned. For God's sake, we're not letting that. That's anti-monarchist. Left wing, we're not having that film. You can't show it. So the Benchy crossed out the titles on the film canisters and put Wild West Adventure and then stuck it on anyway and said, here we are with the cowboys of the Wild West with their rapiers and pompadours. And here they are fighting the evil bankers, storming that Bastille-shaped thing. Um, and uh, they did not get away with this. Uh, this was a very kind of famous uh, core celebre among the Benchy. Uh, and this kind of thing, it absolutely fascinates me in history because, you know, silent film, we regard it as such a kind of ossified process. And, and the way it would come alive, alive, literally in three dimensions, when there's a guy standing at the front shouting at you about what's happening in this film is very interesting. The other thing I will mention as well, which is not a discovery I've made, it's by uh, someone called Yu Sakai, who very recently published a paper on this, um, is the degree to which subversion in um, Japan in the 20th century was in plain sight. And Yu Sakai has written a fantastic article about something called uh, the wartime graphic, um, which is a, a magazine about you know great stuff that's happening in the war, all the war things going on. But Sakai points out that the, the, the wartime graphic is actually run by a bunch of pacifists. And every single opportunity they get to monkey wrench the wartime message they are taking. So it'll be like our victorious troops return home and there'll be a picture of like one victorious troop and then a bunch of coffins behind him. And at no point have they actually said, we don't think this war is a good thing. But despite being called the wartime graphic, they, the, the publications of the wartime graphic, every single issue manages to kind of get one over on the military uh, pretty much every time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I love this. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, I just love that they're complete buggers and that it's <laughs> that easy to just scrub out the label and put, yeah, Wild West, they won't care about that. It's just cowboys. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. It's mental, but, isn't it? And, and, and the Benchy, you know, the Benchy are a fascinating subject in and of themselves. And, and they were particularly important in Japan because other countries got intertitles and other countries got sound faster. And the, and the Benchy, because they made the experience of going to the Japanese cinema, such a live event, really stayed until the 1930s. They were only really defeated in the 1930s, uh, partly by the absence of Japanese film. Uh, and they even played a part in the, in the war. When there were sanctions against the Americans, the Benchy refused to narrate American films. And so they kind of shut down all the cinemas because you couldn't go and see the cowboy films anymore, assuming they were cowboy films and not a bunch of people with rapiers. You know. It's brilliant. We're rapidly advancing towards the only thing I know about Japanese history, and that is Japan's attempt to off Charlie Chaplin in the 1920s-30s, because mm -hmm. the World War weird. But you've already mentioned sound. Yeah. What difference does the invention of the radio make? It's an absolute huge game changer in everything uh date wise we're looking at 1925 is the tokyo broadcasting system and by 1926 the various different uh metropolises of japan have been forcibly amalgamated into the japanese broadcasting society in, into nhk which still exists today the national broadcaster so what the radio does is it well firstly it generates the kind of situation that we're in right now i don't mean you me and zach i mean anyone listening to this 
is hearing my voice in some odd situation. I don't know. You're on the toilet. You're driving a car. You're, uh, you know, on, on the run from the police. Whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this podcast, I'm here talking to you about it. And the ability to reach into people's lives, into their everyday life, is really quite amazing. Um, so although the gramophone did make it possible for songs to be recorded and archived and heard and reheard, that the fact that the radio is penetrating people's lives, is dominating their evening entertainment, until the 1950s, radio is the medium that is the most publicly accessible. I understand that cinema exists, but you've got to make the physical effort to go to a cinema to, to see that film. And that's being curated for you at a very local level. Radio allows nationally broadcast decisions, um, including coordination. Radio calisthenics becomes a thing. Uh, so the whole population is being exhorted to get up and do exercises based on the military exercise manual. Radio ceremonial becomes a thing. The whole population on the emperor's birthday is exhorted to bow towards Tokyo on the third beep. You know, there's this incredible uh, uh, overtaking uh, of, of people's lives, this invasion, this invasion of people's lives, really, by radio. Um, there was a science fiction author uh, called Juza um, uh, Uno or Juza Una, depending on uh, which version of the romanization you want to use. And he wrote a story called The Music Bath at 1800, which is a science fiction story about this country where every day at six o'clock, everyone has to kind of stand to attention and listen to the military song message that basically it works like this basilisk to hypnotize them and to distract them from what their country's up to which is being overrun by martians as it happens um so uh really quite fascinating the difference the radio makes and of course what it does is it starts to uh is that all these these songs that i've mentioned these are not just sitting there on sheet music this is not something that happens at school assembly this is now your daily life. This is you on the way to work. This is you in the office. These songs are coming at you all the time. Um, and as Japan becomes increasingly right-wing and increasingly militaristic, competition is being edged out. So you start to get these kind of rumblings, uh, in, in particularly in the right-wing press, about how we shouldn't have these kind of romantic songs. We should have more warry songs to get everyone really excited and, and interested in all this warness that would really help um and so uh the radio becomes a, a very uh, important contributor to that um in the 20s and the 30s and on into the 40s um should we start moving towards world war ii it, it, yeah particularly mm -hmm. having a, a look at the time um because you talk about this this sort of slide towards the right wing which Perhaps, um, and this is ignorance speaking here, but that's what I particularly associate with the build-up to the Second World War within Japan and, and the movements that lead in that direction. So what ends up being big in Japanese society when it comes to songs during that period? Well, once you are heading towards um, World War II itself, um, the Japanese people are being dragged in as an entire nation into it. I mean, since 1915, the watchword has been autarky. There's been this, this sense that the next war is going to be a total war. Everyone has to be involved. Everyone has to contribute. Women have to stop wearing makeup. They have to wear, you know, uh, they have to stop investing in foreign fashion. We have to make the tram lines fit gun carriages um, because, you know, we need to have every single aspect of society geared towards a possible war effort and a total war effort. The songs themselves... Um, start to incorporate other areas of society, not just soldiers, but the mothers of soldiers, grieving widows. Uh, there's one song called Kudanzaka about a, a woman who goes to visit her son's shrine at the, at the, at the uh, her son's memorial at, at the um, uh, the Yasukuni shrine. And, and and one of the verses is, oh, "I'm such a yokel, I'm crying." You know, like I'm embarrassed that I am grieving for my son because I'm supposed to be proud uh, of the fact that he died. By World War Two the songs take on this colonialist aspect. The big hits of uh, the Japanese hit parade, as it were, uh, at the end of the 1930s were Suzhou Nights, The Dancing Girl of Shanghai, The Canton Blues, all reflecting the fact that Japan is pushing into China, seizing control of China. But the really big hit, it's a very obscure song today because it's so bad, is a song called Ching Lai, 
which which is Chinese for please come, gather round. And this was a manufactured hit. Um, it was actually um, uh, it was actually commissioned um, uh, to promote the to, to to kind of downplay the dangers of China. It's a magician um, addressing a crowd. It's like, hey, everyone, come around. We got some magic tricks we're going to show, and the girls are pretty as well, and la la la. And it's this carnivalized, racist um, interpretation of how harmless China is. It's this kind of world of wizards and sexy girls. Uh, they're not going to try and blow you up or anything. Um, and it's sung in broken Japanese. So it's this real kind of, uh, I mean, I translated the song for my book, and I had to put a footnote going, I'm being as racist as the song when I translate this. And, um, and it was given away. Japanese army bought tens of thousands of copies of this song, shipped them by the crateful to China, and then distributed them everywhere to try and make sure that everyone was playing this song. I mean, the, the, the message they're trying to send to their own soldiers is, you know, China's harmless. You know, they're not really shooting at you. But the message they're trying to sell to the Chinese as well is their own interpretation of what the Chinese are like, which is slightly dim, um, incoherent, uh, people who don't speak proper Japanese. Um, even the words they use for China in the song are words that only a Japanese person would use. They're, they're, so, uh, and, and this was six months after the rape of Nanjing. So the, 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 the Japanese military's public outreach effort is a song about wizards, um, which is really not very well known today, as I said, because it's a very bad song. But that is kind of one of the last of, of the so-called Tairiku melodies, which is the, the, the mainland melodies, uh, which is a genre of song about how great China and Siberia are and how so much adventure is just lying there uh, waiting for the Japanese to take it. I love it. I see you basically you're recruiting friends by being racist. It's... Uh, um, I don't. I don't think anybody who is a racist goes, "Oh dear, I'm being racist today." I, yeah. I, I think that you know, racism is born from an absence of knowledge, from an ignorance. Sometimes people might say they hate someone from another country, and someone might say, "Well, if you hate them, you must be a racist." But a racist is going to have a reason for hating them. They think. Um, when it comes to Ching Lai, um, it just regards the Chinese as children. Yeah. As stupid ignorant savages that the Japanese are here to kind of help. The Chinese uh, at this point are living through like what they refer to as basically a century of humiliation, aren't they? That's right. Well, the, the, and, and, the, and the Japanese are kind of at the forefront of this century of humiliation by this point. The Japanese, uh, the, the Chinese are fighting this huge war. Um, the definition of when World War II begins. Mm, uh, is, this is up for debate now, isn't it? It's 37. It is. It's not 37. The People's Republic of China has come out and said it's 31. Um, right. So, so because, and when you decide when that date is, is a political decision because the degree to which a, a, a false flag attack or a terrorist attack or an invasion or a provocation started things in motion that led to the war then determines when the war began. It, it's something I return to quite often because, you know, did the war begin in 31 or did it begin in 37 or did it begin in 41 uh, or did it begin in 1918 when everybody gave up on the idea of, of um, of a community of nations. Um, but I think 31 uh, is, is when the People's Republic of China in the last 10 years has, has defined the beginning of the war resistance against Japan, um, which obviously for them went on until 1945. What is the Information Bureau for Unified National Patriotism? The Unified Bureau for, uh, the Information Bureau for Unified National Patriotism is a government quango whose job it is, is to get everybody singing off the same hymn sheet quite literally um so one of their jobs for example was to come up with a song everyone could sing so now the national anthem it's a bit sort of pious we want something that celebrates the entire japanese nation and so they wrote that they had a competition um of a song that would bring the whole japanese empire together not just the home islands but everywhere japan had conquered they wanted this song uh, and the one they came up with was, was called Aikoku Koshin Kyoku, the, the Patriotic March. See the eastern dawning sky, the shining morning sun, hope and vivacity shine in both heaven and earth among the eight provinces in the midst of bright morning clouds. Mount Fuji stands perfect and glorious, the pride of our Japan. 
what's wrong with this is all it talks about is Japan. So everyone in the colonies, he's like, what the actual fuck? What about us? You know, so it fails completely in its mission to unite everybody because it just talks about Japan all the time. Also, uh, much to the, uh, um, the Information Bureau's embarrassment, the Prime Minister's brother, uh, a man called uh, Konoe Hirimaro, was a very prominent and high-ranking conductor in Tokyo. And he went on the record saying, this song is shit. Only an idiot would write this song. You know, the, the lyrics are crap. The scansion doesn't work. It sounds like a German drinking song. Uh, I can't believe that this is the best song you could come up with to sum up Japan. And everyone has to sit there kind of with their heads in their hands, hoping the prime minister doesn't say anything back because there's now an argument between him and his brother about what constitutes patriotism. Um, so, and that was interesting because you know it's a very rare time when the music community actually stood up for themselves and said, these songs are terrible. Because that's the other thing. I am interested in these songs because of what they meant to the people at the time. They are not what I would call musically fun. It's not something you're going to put on the stereo or on at a party, unless you're at a party for the fascists. So, uh, and I don't know about you, I don't know that many fascists. Um, so it's very interesting to see the musical community actually stand up and every now and then say, what are you doing to this medium? You are twisting it in a, in a very unpleasant way. I'm going to be incredibly petulant and drag us back to the Second World War. Um, yeah, so yeah, go ahead. Nanny, nanny, um, boss, because I've got the mic, although she can mute me, so maybe this isn't the smartest idea. Um, the Allies, did they fight back musically? Because in Europe, they do things like twist um, bits of Beethoven and fire it back at the Nazis and basically wave two things in their face mm. with it. Um, do the Allies try and do an equivalent when it comes to the Japanese? Uh, well, I mean, there there are American propaganda songs. Um, I actually included one in my book originally, which was a You're a Sap, Mr. Jap uh, by Spike Jones and his City Slickers, which is a song I, I ironically I know from my childhood, um, uh, uh, which is uh, You're a Sap, Mr. Jap to make a Yankee cranky. You're a Sap, Mr. Jap. Uncle Sam is going to spanky. Wait and see before we're done. The A, B, C, and D will sink your rising sun. Anyway, um, a fascinating song. One of several Spike Jones. I mean, he, Spike Jones also did the, the Fuhrer's Face, if you if you know that one. I, I, um, but uh, ridiculously racist. Um, and uh, we we actually took it out of the book because my my book is about the Japanese side. It's not really about the American response so much. And there are many other propaganda activities by the Americans uh, and the rest of the Allies um, that would be a whole different book. Um, so, so firstly, yes, there were American songs that were, that were aimed at um, snagging off the Japanese, but they, the Japanese didn't sit there listening to it and feeling sorry for themselves. They never got to hear those. They were to, to, to ramp up the, the troops back home. Um, one of the greatest effects, um, uh, one of the greatest fightbacks, as it were, was in, the, in what was banned. Because as the war went on, uh, there were increasing clampdowns on foreign corruption, on corrupting foreign influences. So foreign cinema was withdrawn, and then foreign songs were withdrawn. And it was said, we have to have songs that encourage our military. We have to have things uh, that, you know, make Japan a more martial place. We haven't got time for these corrupting foreign influences like Alexander's Ragtime Band. Um, and so all of these kind of jazz classics and all of these uh, Stephen Foster songs and Camptown Races and so on, they're all withdrawn from the Japanese media. You can't play them on the radio anymore. People frown at you if you play them in a dance hall. Um, and this really backfired. Because Old Lang Syne was the, the song they played off, they played you off with at every Japanese dance hall. The last number was always Old Lang Syne. And it was also what they played at Navy ceremonies as well. Uh, and so uh, General Tojo, who had inaugurated this anti-foreign policy, said, why aren't they playing the song they normally play when, when, when the, the dance ends? And they're like, that's a foreign song, Mr. Tojo. We can't play it anymore. Is your law that you wrote can't do it. He's ah like, oh, pants, uh, because uh, Old Lang Syne, uh, with its Japanese lyrics, which is something about fireflies, um, 
is so old in Japan that no one realized, and everyone kind of forgot it was actually a foreign tune. Um, and so uh, the the effects of, of, of soft power um, of foreign songs, uh, foreign tunes, and also foreign cinema, uh, which was often uh, cheaper because it had already earned its money back abroad, but also in color and kind of more exciting. These, the removal of those things uh, did a, a fair degree of damage um, in Japan. Um, my favorite, however, is, is a thing called Bunker Camp. Um, and this has caused all kinds of controversy. I had a huge public fight with a Japanese academic about this because he refused to believe this existed uh, because it's not something that comes up in the Japanese school system. But uh, prisoners of war were drafted into the media industry in Japan. Uh, and um, there were a group of about a dozen allied soldiers, mainly captured at Singapore, who were forced to work at something called bunker camp, culture camp. And, and they had to do radio broadcasts and train Japanese radio announcers you know, in the Tokyo Rose style uh, to do propaganda broadcasts. Um, and uh, there's a fascinating book about it the, uh, called Tokyo Calling, the author of which uh, I've, I've um, forgotten. I've forgotten her name, I'm afraid. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's very interesting because they thought they were working under the, the pain of death. Uh, they, were, they were lined up and told they were going to work on this thing. And one British officer said, well, I refuse to. And they marched him out. And everyone thought they'd executed him. In fact, he'd been sent to work in a mine and he did survive the war. And one of the Australians, um, it, was, it became a very cause celeb in, uh, in Australia over whether or not he had betrayed his country by working for the Japanese military in propaganda, like, like, like Lord Haw Haw, or if he'd already given far more than any citizen could be expected to give by fighting in the first place, and if he was captured and was offered a free packet of fags, if he'd sing a song about Japan, that was okay. Uh, so there's this big issue about it, which was really resolved after the war when his own men asked him to lead their column in the victory parade afterwards. It's a very moving story. Uh, so anyway, you've got these guys in bunker camp and they have to do songs and skits and fake news reports uh, to try and uh, distract the allies in the Pacific. And they try and do everything they can to, to ruin it for the Japanese. And they have to do it as subtly as they possibly can. And my favorite part of it was, is that they did kind of, they, they played all the hits and they knew they were playing to Americans. So they chose as many British songs as they could because they knew the Americans would hate it. So it would be, and now for all you, you know, American soldiers listening, here's another one of the great tracks by Gracie Fields. And they'd put it on and sit there snickering to themselves. And all the Americans go, oh, I hate this Japanese propaganda radio. Um, so uh, the, the degree to which Bunker Camp was even heard, was even uh, by, by the Allies, is, is debatable. I think most of them preferred to listen to Tokyo Rose if they're listening to anything. Um, but... Uh, uh, so, so, so those were all ways that the Allies fought back, often from within the Japanese military, as it turned out. What role does music play in the end of the war? Well, um, recording becomes a huge issue at the end of the war um, uh, because uh, the Emperor's surrender address was put on a, on a, on a record, on one of those, those floppy pseudo-vinyl things. So that was pre-recorded uh, and, and it was kept in the palace the day before the um, the announcement of the surrender was made. And so one of the last battles of World War II was actually fought in the grounds of the Imperial Palace when a group of Japanese soldiers tried to seize the record with the Emperor's surrender broadcast so it wouldn't be broadcast. As the war got progressively worse, the songs themselves became progressively more defiant. Um, they stopped playing the Japanese national anthem at the beginning of uh, broadcasts and started playing a song called If We Go to Sea, Our Corpses Will Rot in the Ocean. I mean, it's a really horrible song, um, but it was kind of, it was a, a, a feature of how desperate things were becoming. And, and the term shattered jewel comes back to haunt people uh, because um, there's a song about the Battle of Attu, which is the Alaskan island that was recaptured uh, by the Allies. I mean, and the Battle of Attu was really a sign that things were, were, were turning back. I mean, the, 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 they reached the high water mark and things were always going to go downhill from there. Um, and so uh, the song about the Battle of Attu um, mentioned the fact that all the soldiers died. Uh, that uh, I think 
there's like like a couple of dozen people survived about three thousand soldiers i mean and and many of them died in suicide fighting they blew themselves up with hand grenades um and so the song of the battle of atu says um some 100 brave soldiers yet remain they bow in prayer towards the imperial palace then screaming a war cry in unison they shatter as jewels upon the american uh, upon the enemy force and so jokusai su turns shattering a jewel into a verb and from that point onwards jokusai a shattered jewel becomes a comment on japanese military dispatches if the japanese have lost but have lost in a spectacularly destructive way in which everybody dies and they take a few of the enemy with them that becomes a shattered jewel incident and tojo's uh, uh war broadcasts increasingly call upon the japanese themselves to shatter as jewels this becomes an issue with um the uh, the planned uh, allied landings in japan he goes i want you all to shatter of jewels i want a hundred million jewels to shatter upon the american forces the fact that the um uh that there aren't a hundred million people in japan a hundred million wouldn't have to include all the colonies as well uh, is kind of ignored um and so uh there is this uh sense that japan knows it's losing and now we're fighting a war to delay the enemy for as long as possible to hold the allies back for as long as possible in the hope we can do some kind of deal and that every suicidal death that takes more of the enemy with them will somehow convince the enemy that this war isn't worth fighting and so shattered jewel shattered jewel shattered jewel becomes this kind of constant refrain uh, in the later um uh days of the war just one final question from us before we sadly have to wrap this up what about legacy you know what what happens to these wartime songs how do people sort of try and reconcile what they've had pumped into their ears with the reality of what happens to the nation post 1945 well, i think a lot of them have disappeared i mean there's a fantastic book by georgi osada called uh um songs left by the war which goes through all of the songs it's a massive 800 page book which kind of talks about all of them many of them i mean most of them you can find on youtube they're, they're not unknown um but they tend to be um uh they're not something that people tend to sing apart from at takushoku university where one of them is still the university song uh called the the, the bandit song about how great it is to invade manchuria um but uh for the, for the rest of them the, the, these songs kind of faded they are wiped out by the the allied occupation and so you know and, and all this american pop that flows in and, and the beatles and you know and uh the the various foreign uh, musical styles that kind of swamp it and that the japanese then start to imitate themselves and embrace themselves um the songs had one last flourish in a very odd way um towards uh, long long after the war um with the holdouts with the the soldiers who were found you know on, on remote pacific islands still thinking the war was going on after 30 years um because they were often hiding out you know in the jungle and the only way that people could reach them was to sing at them and so for example in 74 there's a guy called Teruo Nakamura who's who's in Indonesia and Morotai and the local army actually march out into the forest and sing the Japanese national anthem into the forest and, the, and <laughs> they're not actually Japanese themselves they've learned it phonetically and he kind of pops his head out of the jungle and goes are you japanese and they then start singing the patriotic march and he can hear that they're not native speakers and so he starts shooting at them um and so uh, uh but on on several occasions uh when it comes to uh these um uh the, the, these songs uh the last time they were really performed in any meaningful way was to lure the last japanese soldiers out of the jungles and out of the forest and to t- in order to have a conversation with them to say no 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 the war really has ended it really is over it's okay for you to go home jonathan as ever it's been so damn good um we love having you on you must come back and do more because we can't do a session of these recordings without you so your book is out in may right on on the 10th of may it's called um, japan at war in the pacific 
brilliant. And it's published by Tuttle. Uh, you will also be able to get it, folks, from the History Hack bookstore. Link in the description. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute... I- I'm going to call it what it was. It was an episode of shithousery. We love it. <laughs> it's a fascist sing-along, and that's what we like to do. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.